Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode six, entitled Overscheduling. This is the second of three episodes I will be releasing this week, which I have entitled Practice and Performance Primers. Today's episode, in keeping with our podcast, is devoted to the parents of young artists. As usual, I'm going to give you real talk from all the perspectives, student, teacher, adjudicator, and parent. I've already heard from a lot of you about our sleep episode, and I sincerely hope that it has been helpful in starting some conversations in your households this week. I'm excited about releasing all three of these episodes this week because I'm really enthused about helping other parents rethink how we can tailor our lives more effectively around the growth of our young artists. I call these episodes practice and performance primers because when these things are aligned correctly in our lives and families, young artists simply thrive. Raising a young artist goes beyond a great teacher and making sure they are practicing enough. It is a full family commitment, and these primer episodes serve to guide you in aligning your household with what I believe is the optimal learning environment for a talented young performer. Today's episode will be totally devoted to the topic of overscheduling and its impact on the lives of young artists. So let's get started. If you talk to most music teachers, one of their biggest complaints is the overscheduling of kids in their studios. And it isn't just about scheduling them for a lesson time during the year, because yes, that scheduling can also be a nightmare. Today, we're just going to be talking about the challenges that teachers face with children that are arriving to class yawning, sleepy, inattentive, sometimes having even had to skip a meal, Maybe they're just arriving from lessons straight out of testing. The fact is, many students are chronically overscheduled. And here's the thing. We really can't do quality work with your kid like this. And if that isn't worrisome enough, here's another thing to think about. As a teacher, I don't get the impression that expectations for me are being adjusted in these cases. I took the time to talk to a few teachers about this just to make sure I was on the mark, and they readily agreed with me. So with these kids who are overscheduled and arriving exhausted, not at all primed for a great session with me, somehow the expectations for me are still high. And in a few cases, I've felt that the expectations were even higher. Maybe in those cases, parents were particularly intense about the training that their children received in general. Perhaps everything was expected to produce outcomes at a very high level. But were they really keeping up their end of the bargain? From a teacher's perspective, I'm going to tell you, no, they weren't. In competitive studios like mine, there are always plenty of expectations to go around when it comes to producing high-level results. But if these brilliant kids are not presenting in a great state to learn, the training is hobbled right from the start. I don't mind telling you, parent to parent, what I have heard and discussed with other teachers on this topic. Because one, I promised real talk and I meant it. But also, I don't know that the right people are really talking enough about this. 
it seems it's more a subject in passing or one that is just frankly assumed. Maybe teachers don't want to cross that line and tell you how to make decisions for your family. And that's important. It really is. But trust me, your teachers are struggling with this issue more than you know. They are being asked to teach impossibly complex things to kids who are often not in an optimal state of learning. That's a lot of pressure to put on even the best teacher. And it's a lot of pressure to put on your relationship with the teacher. It can affect how a teacher perceives you as a parent and your availability for extra opportunities that can come their way. So often as a teacher, I've been given incredible opportunities for my students. But if I suspect that that opportunity might not be prioritized because of an overscheduled family, I might change my mind about who I give one opportunity to or another. To me, this is just human nature. And I have encountered this not just at lessons, but at incredibly important recording sessions, competition rounds which are live, and even with rehearsals with the orchestra. I'm always a little shocked to find out that somehow, even with the clear importance of these events, parents may not have taken the time to pare down their schedule for that day or even the week leading up. I've had them arrive for these things straight from a test or having skipped a meal. I find them studying homework in the car on their way to a performance. And most of all, they just appear maxed out mentally from lack of sleep or maybe from having too many other high-level activities earlier in the day. If you took a listen to my sleep episode, you know that I think sleep deprivation and overscheduling go hand in hand. In fairness, I've had certain families over the years who had one without the other. So maybe they were sleep-deprived with a perfectly workable schedule because the kid just had trouble sleeping, or there have been a few who have been clearly overscheduled, but somehow they get their kids to bed and prioritize sleep. Much more often, though, we see both things together, sleep-deprived and overscheduled. Why is this? The pressure of getting kids into colleges or even to get them into the right private middle or high school seems to be looming incredibly large over parents' minds these days. I know for a fact this was not happening when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And while the pressure is palpable, lack of sleep and overscheduling can be sabotaging your best efforts here. Lack of sleep impairs them cognitively, as we discussed in the previous episode, and overscheduling them eliminates the time necessary to delve into their artistic development, which will help them stand out. We live in a culture that values activity over sleep. Every moment is expected to have purpose. Many value activity over rest. We don't see kids playing outside as much anymore, and instead they're using a learning app on an iPad. Recess is being cut at schools, and parents pride themselves on kids doing extra tutoring around school hours. Tutoring back in my day was reserved for kids who needed extra help to keep up with the curve in their class. But now it has taken on a whole new form. Tutoring is being used to get ahead and happening outside of school hours. I have known many studio parents over the years that had a different extracurricular activity scheduled every day of the week. It seems to be happening younger and younger, 
because I know classmates of my kids who are in first and third grade who are doing this already. Art, karate, dance, swim, chess, piano. Where's the downtime? As an educator, I think, well, if we want people to prioritize downtime, we need to help them understand how valuable it is to success. So let's talk for a minute about why downtime can help them succeed and why I feel it needs a big comeback. In the sleep studies I spoke about in our last episode, it came up many times that a relaxed state is also a very fluid learning state and one where insights and solutions become clearer to us. Have you ever come up with a solution or a workaround while in the shower or after you've had a long nap? This is why. If kids are being scooted from one activity to another, they don't have that necessary reflective time to relax. As a teacher, I believe in learning planes. There are active ones while they are practicing or training, ones that are under adrenaline like on stage or in audition, and inactive ones like downtime, just to name a few. And I don't think you can substitute one for another. We need to help them access all of these learning planes to really be at the top of their playing field, in my opinion. And the learning plane, which should be activated every day in downtime, brings thoughtful, insightful, imaginative work to the table. This is a crucial component in high-level training. We aren't just talking about nuts and bolts in the high-level training. Once technique and the foundation is established, we are sculpting their unique voices to be heard and stand out in a larger field of other aspiring musicians. And things are just becoming more and more competitive in our field. This might surprise you, but I actually have not yet witnessed a really overscheduled kid who is sleep deprived get to the top of the field. And I have been teaching for over 25 years now. Why is this? Well, if you ask me, it's because I think they burn out or they lose edge. They can't develop that elusive quality that makes young careers because they lack introspective work. Ultimately, they lack dimension in their playing, which lends them that uniqueness I keep mentioning. Beyond the downtime, they lack the time to live life and experience the full myriad of emotions that lead to really powerful music making. So why is that a hard pill for some parents to swallow? I think there are a few plausible reasons for this. Reason number one appears to me immediately. Certainly, there is no part of that culture that reinforces the idea of filling every minute with activities more than the college admissions process. But you can go ahead and substitute middle and high school application processes as well. Teens are constantly being given the message that they have to be good at many things or well-rounded to attract Ivy Leagues or top-tier schools. But here's the thing. All of the data I have read disputes this theory entirely. I scoured the net looking for evidence that this could be true, and I found nothing. Everything I read about Ivy League admissions, including from the admissions directors themselves and from former graduates, 
indicates that they are selecting children with singular talents who are also grounded. So let's discuss this because I'm hoping I get some of you talking at home and doing some more research of your own. If you're like me, you've already read about this, but let's discuss this because I'm hoping I can get some of you to start talking about it at home and maybe redo some of your research. Here's what I gathered from the admissions people about what they're actually looking for. And it isn't to drive your kid into the ground with overscheduling of extracurriculars. They're looking to see how the students are engaging in the extracurriculars more than the number of them. They want to see that they are engaged and curious. So they're looking to see if this activity has spurred on other related interests for you. For example, maybe your violin lessons have inspired you to take composition lessons, and then you ended up tutoring for extra credit and loved working with children so much that you found yourself volunteering at a local music camp as a counselor the following summer. They want to see natural and genuine self-starter traits from your kids that are participating in extracurriculars, evidence of leadership and entrepreneurialism. So maybe your kid took charge of the yearly orchestral fundraiser and helped them build a scholarship fund for kids who need help purchasing instruments. They want to see that your kid is working with and for others and building team skills. They look at the student's natural drive to achieve. Did they need to get up early before school to practice for years to reach the level of playing they have now? In their extracurriculars, do they show an ability to be courageous and try new things that could take them to high levels? Colleges like to see evidence of kids striving for great things against the odds because it shows that they believe in themselves and that they're willing to take risks, sometimes messy risks. Kids who care about only being perfect won't strive like this because they will typically only try things they know they can present perfectly. They also look at the length committed to an activity, so the depth of your studies. This shows integrity because there are bumps in every road with activities and passions. But if you have been in it for the long haul already, you're showing a certain grit or persistence, having worked through those bumpy patches, gaining necessary skills for the future. And last, but certainly not least, they are looking for a singular talent about your kid that makes them stand out from the rest of the pack. For some of our kids, this is their musical or artistic talent. But how do we get their artistic talent so high level that it is unmistakable to higher institutions, flagging our kids' application with a definite yes? We need to arrange their schedules in a way for them to have the mental space and time to do in-depth work, the blood, sweat, and tears kind of work that lets them truly develop their unique voice on their instrument. And before people start pondering what in the world I know about IVs in the admissions process since I'm a conservatory musician, let me ease your mind and let you know that like many high-level teachers all over the world, I have sent more kids to IVs than conservatories over the years. Some are not majoring in music, but some are. But this includes Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Northwestern, Brown, Princeton. The important point I'm making is they all had something very singularly impressive about them. 
They stood out in their applications, and they got a yes. I've also obviously had many students be accepted to top-tier music conservatories, and we made sure their unique qualities as a player were on vivid display, both in their auditions and in their applications. And that didn't happen easily if they were overscheduled. We needed time to cultivate their strengths and build their weaknesses up. We had to strategize in our time away from practice about how we could develop the traits in their playing that helped their voice come forward. This whole application process for Ivy's, it kind of reminds me of how people judge in larger music competitions too. When I've judged international competitions for a first round, I'm listening for that incredibly clear voice that in my opinion only comes from accessing all of the planes of learning I spoke about earlier. When I hear that special quality, I flag them and come back later to do a more detailed comparison between the other contenders. If I don't hear it, I reject and I move on. Sound harsh? Well, this is what the Ivy League admissions people were saying they do too. Other competition judges I've worked with have said that they describe players they flag for round two as the ones they would like to hear again versus the kid who played honestly great, no mistakes, but didn't really compel them to press play on their next track. Okay, so let's ask some tough questions now. How is it with all of this research out and available to anyone that parents are still scheduling four to five activities a week, even with heavy class loads and homework? First, I think some parents do this when the kids are younger so that they can identify what their passions are, and I see nothing wrong with that. Those activities are generally smaller. The time slots for training are smaller. Truthfully, the commitment to the whole family is smaller, but at the beginning. For our family, Ava has many passions other than violin. Violin has just taken the top slot for now. It's as their level grows that the commitment does too. And if you keep all of those activities going at high levels, you're up a creek. So maybe they start with multiple things as they're little and parents just forget to edit back. Some kids can excel at a certain level at almost everything because they're just brilliant. And that can be exhilarating for everyone. So what if your kid is one of the ones I just mentioned and by middle school, they're dragging you around, extending the extracurricular schedule and basically running the show. I've seen this a lot as a teacher, and I think the parents just eventually need to step in and edit things down, but sometimes that's really hard to do. I think also that those parents need to have a sit-down talk with their instructors and ask what thoughts the teachers have about their potential and possibilities for the future. My own parents braved those waters with my violin teacher, and it gave them the courage to invest in my violin training full throttle. I still kept other hobbies, but we scaled them down and we reframed them. In older kids, I think it starts to be important that we also give them permission to say no to some things. This will enable them to say yes to experiences that truly matter, and it will give them the space to reach a higher level on something they feel really passionate about. 
They also may need your help to find the right balance between activities that challenge them physically, mentally, and spiritually. I think we all need the right mix of this. If everything is challenging mentally, but nothing renews or restores them, they'll just burn out. I also believe young artists need to understand how maintaining margin in their schedule leaves room for unexpected opportunities, too. It's okay to have some space on certain days for them to explore something further, and they will need that time. It nourishes their passion. Middle school and high school are key times for your kids to learn how to manage their time for maximum learning and maximum living. I think sometimes parents forget this because kids are becoming more independent and voicing their opinions, and we are proud of them for taking that initiative. But they still need our help so that they learn necessary skills in balancing a healthy schedule for the long term. They don't have these skills yet, as talented as they are at many different things. They won't know that by taking on too much, even with the best of intentions, they could be hobbling their schedule and find themselves unable to excel at the thing they love most. One thing I read recently that relates to all of this was a brilliant piece of advice suggesting that young artists only add one new activity at a time and then to wait three to six months before adding another. Here's why. It takes three to six months to peel away from the honeymoon period of a new activity and really know how to complete the sentence, the thing about baseball is, or the thing about robotics team is, because by then you will know if it bombs the whole day for the family due to traffic or if it infringes on their ability to have energy left to practice when the next day is lesson day. You need to assess things gradually And it gives your kid the time to process how that activity is adding to their life or complicating it. I think it's worth noting here that I think our kids are already living lives in stark contrast to some of their peer group. On the other end of the spectrum, some teens have very little to do. In fact, studies show 60% of teenagers spend an average of 20 hours per week in front of the TV and the computer. A small minority of teens, 7%, enjoy a whopping 50 hours of screen time every week. Well, certainly the high-achieving music students I know aren't doing that. But my concern is that they might be going too far in the opposite direction. And when it comes to the decisions that the parents are making, I've given this a lot of thought because I want to understand the parents I'm working with And given the fact expectations aren't adjusted for me sometimes, and ideal work situations are being compromised by overscheduling, I need to understand why they are spreading so thin, so that I can avoid getting overly frustrated. I care about my work with my students, and if it is being compromised by a factor out of my control, it can really put me on edge. So here are some things I've noticed in my parents over the years that I've come to understand more and more. By sharing it with you, I hope that it starts some conversations. I think sometimes kids are overscheduled because of their parents' attachment to a very high work ethic. And at its core, there is nothing wrong with this. I have a high work ethic as well, so I really relate to this. 
They associate hard work with integrity and quitting an activity or not trying your best and giving it everything you have runs against their grain. This makes it hard to pare down activities because they don't want the feelings associated with quitting something and it brings about feelings of failure. It also makes it very difficult to stomach the idea of doing something just for fun or at a mediocre level. Now, when I said mediocre, did it bother you? I ask because it bothered me a little too. Who wants to be mediocre at anything these days, really? But we're forgetting that hobbies are there sometimes to open up our spirits, renew us, and give us joy. These can all be things which help fill our tanks to get ready to get into the grittier work of our real passions. So one thing I want to suggest parents of young artists is that it's okay to have some activities running concurrently, but you need to adjust your expectations on a few of these things back. You have to adjust your expectations back so that you can successfully reframe those activities in your heads and have an open dialogue with your kids about it. Such as, we're going to keep swimming on the agenda, but you know why? Not to compete or get into the Olympics, but because it helps to keep us fit and relaxed, and it's a wonderful way to refresh after long rehearsals. Here is the other reason I've come across that parents overschedule higher level students. Fear. Fear is perhaps even more powerful than the other reasons. I've had the privilege of getting to know certain families for many years because they stay in my studio that long. And because of this, I've been able to tap into this reasoning and it is one of the more difficult ones to be sure. I think it soothes some parents temporarily to have more activities, even if it doesn't necessarily serve them in the long run. And here is where my newly acquired role as studio mom has come in handy. I understand this fear now. Let's be honest and empathetic with one another as parents. It's incredibly scary to put all of your eggs in one basket. It's financially very risky, and it requires incredible faith and commitment. When some parents waver on this, I believe they seek alternate talents to bolster their sense of security. Kind of like saying to themselves, well, if this doesn't work out, we could try this other thing. But what do the kids really need during these times when things are rocky? Because if you are feeling uneasy and fearful, imagine what they must be feeling. And there will be many rocky stages of learning leading up to concert careers. The fact is, if their dreams are clear at this point, it doesn't help them to straddle multiple activities past a certain juncture. So sometimes as parents, we will need to help them stand firm Having taught for so many years and having watched parents interacting with amazing kids, I think the kids need to know we are all in. So you can't be involved in setting up safety nets with extra activities, in my opinion. If they have a dream of becoming a violinist or a conductor or a pianist, 
we need to show them that we are willing to go all in for the training necessary for that dream to become a reality. And this includes scheduling in a way that can allow for that to happen. Because this is part of the leap of faith you must take. If instead you are spreading their schedule out to give them safety nets, this actually sends them the message that you doubt them. We need to start thinking very thoughtfully about these topics as parents. Reframing past hobbies or interests or reprioritizing activities is a necessary task as they get older. If you wait too long, you are missing important training windows for their real passion. A music career is always riddled with self-doubt, so if they feel us doubting them too, it could have a huge negative impact. Actions speak louder than words, so just because you don't tell them out loud you are having doubts about a future career in music or the arts, it doesn't mean your actions aren't hollering that exact message. And it's normal to have doubts. If you are unsure about which talent to focus on, talk to your teachers and ask them to speak honestly about your kid's potential. You can't be afraid to have these conversations. They know the biz better than you, and they've been at it for years. It's their job to know it and to advise you. Make that phone call while your kid is somewhere else so that you can speak really frankly. Once you know what you're going to be focused on, it won't mean your schedule starts looking fancy-free. It means you are free to be more strategic about how you are doing things and that you will be consistently empowering your kids to follow their dreams. There will still likely be many legs of your schedule happening at once. If your kid is pursuing music as a career, you will still find scheduling conflicts between your school, conservatory, youth orchestra, private teacher, rehearsal schedules, the works. So there will still be challenges, and you will constantly be having to edit things down to avoid overscheduling even inside the training of this one focused passion. This is a good segue into my last part of today's podcast, which is there to help you manage your busy, more focused schedule. So hopefully not your jam-packed schedule, but the newly focused one. I give this next leg of advice to my studio parents all the time, and I try and model it for them so that they can see it in action. If you ask parents of busy young musicians what their biggest stress is outside of practice and progress, they will tell you it is managing the schedule. Yes, even a healthy strategic one. They are stressed about schedules conflicting between organizations and disappointing one entity over another. This could be their school or conservatory, their youth symphony or chamber group, rehearsals with pianists, or even scheduling private lessons. It's just hard to juggle it all. And you want everybody on good terms. It's basically like a part-time job at times. When I spoke to the pre-college parents at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, one of the things I really enjoyed talking to them about during my session with them was about how to become more proactive, asking for what you need with your current schedule. I find parents spend a lot of energy and time trying to solve things on their own or just plain worrying about it. Over the years, I've had to step in and advocate a lot for my parents, 
writing orchestra teachers at schools, heads of youth symphonies, the scheduling coordinators of competitions, the works. So I suggest to my parents that as they first feel that worry or anxiety set in, they should immediately take action and ask for help. Not everyone can help you all the time, but you need to become comfortable asking, and the sooner the better. Frankly, the act of asking can extinguish the anxiety like a check mark on that item on the to worry about list. So I highly suggest doing it, and I also suggest pairing these queries for help with good habits of gratitude. I made a habit of always thanking both the youth symphony and pianist of any student who achieved in a competition or audition. After a while, I started even writing the masterclass artists if the piece my student played to success was one that they had coached on. I did this quickly and by email because I knew that they would be happy to hear I was including them in this good news. And it was also to thank them for being a part of that child's education. The more times I did it, the easier and quicker it got. And it feels great. What does this have to do with overscheduling? Well, first, it's modeling good communication and gratitude for the kids. But you already know that. The thing that you might not think about is that it begets flexibility when you need it, and you're going to find yourself in multiple scheduling conundrums. It takes really little time to acknowledge people in this way, and it pays off. If their only association with you is that you are a mom or a dad that has always asked them for a scheduling exception, they won't be as likely or quick to help you. But if when they open the email, they recognize your name and it brings a smile to their face because they feel appreciated, they might be quick to do that thing that you need. This is human nature. And the thing is, I'm sure you have had genuine moments of gratitude toward them. And you do think about them from time to time. I'm just asking you to write something down when that happens and press send. These are good habits to pass on to your kids for later, too. Not just for good manners, but for networking, which for many professional musicians proves necessary for survival later on. The thing to keep in mind is you will need to ask for help in many ways raising a young artist. So it's time to get used to flexing that muscle. For some of us, that's easier than others. Some things will be easily accommodated and some won't, but you will have to ask. So develop a healthy rapport with the organizations that have influence over your schedule. You won't regret it. I hope this has given you some new things to think about regarding your child's schedule. I'm confident that once parents open up dialogues about this with their families and also with their teachers, it will allow young artists to flourish And while I know this topic was a hard one for some of us, I hope that it serves you well. Seeing our young, talented kids thrive makes it all worth it. Our next episode will be my last installment in the Practice and Performance Primer series, and it is entitled Nutrition. I hope you will tune in for this last episode to learn more about how to optimize your child's nutrition around training and performing. These primer episodes were written to inspire parents to align their households with what I believe is the ideal environment for a young, talented performer. Don't miss a beat. 
Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Connect.